Hi, I'm Carson. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to Old Bright. Old Bright is a podcast made by Carson Ellis and Alex Joe Ryan. It is an ongoing collection of conversations that document musings, speculation, and light research on and around an Oregon pioneer farmstead. Our theme music is The Willamette Shore by Chad Crouch. Hey, Carson. Hi, Alex. <laughs> um, so I guess we should start off by saying we recognize that we ended last episode intending to put one out every two weeks, mm-hmm. and it's already been past that mark, mm-hmm. and we've changed our mind. Yeah, maybe we have. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to. It's hard to make time for podcasting. It is, and also, you know... I don't know about you, um, dearest listener, but we're still suffering from a bit of pandemic mentality and like shift of heart around timelines and everything. And I feel like the world feels like a very involved and busy place to be in and like re-entering the world feels complicated. It does feel complicated. What even are timelines? I don't know. What even are they? They were a thing from before. If I've learned anything, it's like... Let's do this in an easygoing, adaptive, Mm -hmm. uh, evolving sort of way. Yeah, listeners, get ready for lots of adapting and evolving. (laughs) As we figure out what exactly we want this to be. Yeah, we are still figuring it out. Um, I know personally the past couple weeks for me have been kind of a hot mess. No need to go into detail, (laughs) but but life is is chaotic and complicated. Um, And I think... Alex and I are sort of dedicated to just kind of following our impulses and our energy and our inspiration when it comes to this podcast. So it may shift and change. That said, um, we do have a bunch of really good ideas coming Mm -hmm. down the pipe. Um, And they involve reaching out to some different people and, and hopefully getting them on here. So I think there will be a lot of interesting and exciting episodes to come and they will just happen when they happen. They will. So sometimes maybe it will be every two weeks. Sometimes maybe it'll be every week. And sometimes, who knows you know? when the next episode's going to come out. We we are going to take a break from our regularly scheduled podcasting today. Though, I mean, we don't even really know what our regular regularly scheduled podcast consists of. But we're not going to have our segments that we've had in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Today we're, we have, we've mentioned this a couple of times or brought it up, but um, Carson found an account of the nephew of someone who lived here. So Nathaniel Robbins is the person who built my house. He was a pioneer physician and he was um, a delegate to the Oregon Constitutional Convention, the Clackamas County delegate. So he is in the history books. He is eminently uh, researchable 
And uh, this is an account of his nephew, the life of his nephew by his nephew's son. And it includes uh, a lot of information about their Oregon Trail journey. So Nathaniel Robbins is certainly in here. This is a very, very long first person account. And it's, I think it's kind of a gripping read. So I'm going to read part of it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, I think we will read this in parts. Maybe whenever we want to put out an episode of Old Bright, but we don't have a fully formed idea for the next episode, we are going to uh, kind of serialize this interesting first person account. Yeah. And preparing for, or preparing or um, putting this together today, it kind of threw Carson and I into a conversation about what it means, how important it is to learn from first person accounts because they do, they give an explanation of history in a way that it was being seen and experienced by people truthfully from a time. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means that from today's standards or from another lens or from who Carson and I are today, there's a lot of this that feels outdated and uh, frankly, pretty racist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it is how a lot of white settlers felt at the time. And I think that it's important to acknowledge that and acknowledge it both as a trigger warning. If you don't want to listen to it, then you don't have to. And also as this is the reality of, you know, where people were coming from when they were white people, when they were settling this, this area. And it's important that we know that. And, like, have that in our awareness. And also, it's important, I think it's important, at least, um, to be able to sift through that and find and learn from the pieces that are still valuable today. Mm-hmm. Well, well put. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, so, yeah, the trigger warning is that it's insensitive. It's certainly racist in places. And also, it's gory in places. Um, so if that's not your thing, you may want to skip out on this. And here I'm going to read our land acknowledgement because, you know, throughout this account that we're going to read, but also at the beginning, um, it's, this account is written by white people and they refer to the indigenous people that they were in proximity to, um, through the lens that they were thinking about them at that time, which obviously is a violent lens. Mm -hmm. And so, Um, That ties into our land acknowledgement, which is that the Robbins Melcher Schatz Farm, where we are right now, is located on Otfaliti, Kalapuya, and Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde land. The U.S. government gifted this land to European-American settlers in the form of land claims during the mid-19th century, inherently and violently displacing its original stewards. Thank you. Yeah, and obviously the the views expressed in this first-person account are not the views of Oldbright. Um, Shall I go ahead? Yeah, go for it. You know what? I think I need to get a glass of water. Okay. History of Jacob Robbins and Sarah Spillman as told by their son, Harvey Robbins. A few of the early incidents of the boyhood and girlhood lives of our mother and father, Jacob Robbins and Sarah Spillman, as given by their oldest son, Harvey. Our father, Jacob Robbins, was born in Breckenridge County, Kentucky, on the plantation of Colonel J.C. Breckenridge in the year of 1809, residing there with his parents until he was two years old. At this time, his father headed a colony that crossed the Ohio River into a portion of Indiana known as the Old Pigeon Roost. 
There must have been 40 men in the colony, most of whom had families. They immediately began the work of establishing homes, building log cabins, clearing ground for gardens, etc. They had just gotten fairly started in 1812, which was the beginning of the war with England, when the British subjects incited the Indians to massacre all new settlers in that part of the country. Only two families out of 40 made their escape, one being our grandfather's family. He'd had a lot of experience with the Indians and was continuously on the alert and felt uneasy on this particular night. Not being able to sleep for the thought of what might happen, he got up and looked out, saw the light from the burning buildings, and realized that immediate flight was necessary. As he had only one horse, he put his wife and smaller children on that, and they started out, grandfather and the older children walking. Our father, being only three years old, rode behind his mother on the horse. They took a circuitous route out through the timber until they were satisfied that they were behind the Indians, after which they turned back to the road that led out of the settlement, passing near enough to some of the burning houses that they could see the horrible work done by the Indians, even saw the heads of some of the settlers setting on the gatepost. They traveled in this manner for several miles or until they reached a very large hollow log that he had often seen. He had his wife and children crawl into this log and remain there until he could return for them. He then took the horse and dog some distance from them, fearing they might make some noise that would attract the Indians. He tied the animals both to a tree and left them there till he moved on. He knew their methods well enough to know that they would not be long in getting away after they had accomplished all the meanness they could do. Just as soon as it was safe to start out on the road again, they made their way back into Kentucky, where they remained until peace was established after which they returned to the very same place they tried before, where our grandmother died. Our father was five years old at this time. After suffering many hardships trying to keep the family together, our father was bound out to a relative who gave a written promise to see that he had a certain amount of schooling. He remained with them until he was eight years old, and it was truly a very hard three years for him. Living was poor, clothes were scarce, and the schooling that was promised only amounted to three days. He then decided to run away and make his way back to Kentucky near where he was born. This he did, but imagine his disappointment on his return to Kentucky to find all of his relatives gone. After working his way the best he could, he finally located Abe Lincoln's people, who lived not far away. Abe being his second cousin, they soon became warm friends. The Lincolns were poor people and not financially able to care for more than the family they already had, so, although young in years, the life our father had led made him feel much older, and he realized he must not be a burden to them. So he resolved again to start out and see what he could do for himself. There happened to be a large rock or boulder nearby. He climbed up on that and sat most all one day, thinking and planning his future course, the outcome of which he confided to his cousin Abe. There was not much preparation he could make, as all the clothing he had was on his back which consisted of a toe linen shirt and short pants. He was soon ready for his trip. He had been told that he had an uncle, Billy Robbins, who was a revolution hero living in Indiana near a little town called Greenberg. He fought and was wounded in the Battle of Bunker Hill. He entered the war at the age of about 18 years. He became a man of sterling qualities and very prominent in the country where he lived. So resolved to find his uncle at any risk, he and Abe bade each other a solemn farewell and he started his journey. Knowing at what point on the Ohio River there was a ferry, getting across was not bothering him. Trudging along, he encountered an old lady who accosted him, saying, La me! Little man, what are you doing down here? Where are you going? And whose boy are you? 
He told her his name was Jakey Robbins. They call me Little Jake. He told her he wanted to cross the Ohio River. She said to him, the engines sure will get you. They're a bad set. He replied, I never did them any harm and I'm not afraid. Besides, they are friendly now. When she found he was determined to go on, she asked him what he intended doing for something to eat. He assured her he would find people along the way who would give him a bite to eat. But she well knew there were no settlers near where he would pass. So she told him to come to her cabin and she would divide what she had with him, which consisted of a single pone of cornbread. She broke it in half and gave him one portion. She said all they had in addition was an occasional mess of fish or squirrel that her old man might get when he was fishing or hunting. She carefully did his half pone up in a little sack that he could swing over his shoulder, and with many misgivings as to what may happen to him, she told him her old man had a little boat, what took folks across the river, and that he charged 10 cents for the trip, but didn't know if he would take him without the money or not. However, he proceeded down the river and found the old ferryman, who was amazed at the courage and confidence the little fellow had in his determination to push on and find his relatives. He didn't forget to ask the little man if he had the price of the trip across, 10 cents. When the boy said he had no money, the old fellow said, It was a mighty hard pull across the river, and he didn't like to do it without his money. But admiring the boy's courage, he finally decided to do it, providing little Jake would promise if he ever passed that way again, he would pay the 10 cents. Landing on the other side of the river, he immediately started a lonely trail that immigrants had cut through the forest to enable them to get into the interior of the state. He soon found it was going to be a very hard and wearisome trip in his bare feet. He had only gone a few miles when darkness overtook him, and he was forced to take shelter under a friendly tree. With the use of his pocket knife, flint and punk, he in short time had a bonfire. The knife he used was his prized possession, was old and broken, but had one good steel blade that was always sure of making a spark with a flint. Being very tired with his day's travel, he leaned up against a tree and was soon fast asleep. Early the next morning, he was awake, ate a small portion of the corn loaf, and was on his way again. He traveled in this manner for several days. The road was rough, the country was very sparsely settled, and it was only occasionally that he was fortunate enough to find some settlers where he could get milk and fresh corn pone. Most of the settlers kept very savage dogs, which were a source of great anxiety to him, and it was always with some trepidation and fear that he approached the homes. However, everyone he met was very kind to him, but even so, it took much persuasion to get him to accept shelter, he preferring to keep to himself. After two or three days, his feet became very sore, making the remainder of his trip extremely painful and tedious. But at the end of six or seven days, he was rewarded by finding his uncle Billy Robbins's home. Arriving there, he saw a man some distance from the house, and on approaching him and being asked who he was and where he had come from, he said, I am little Jake Robbins, have come from Kentucky. I'm hunting my uncle Billy Robbins. He was delighted, of course, to find that he was talking to the very uncle whom he had made a perilous trip to find. Of course, his uncle was astounded when he heard the boy's story of how he traveled 100 miles or more, alone without food and very scantily dressed. He told him to go down the house and Aunt Ty would give him some bread and milk. Of course, he found a sympathizing friend in her. After she had fed him, bathed, and bound up his sore and bleeding feet, he felt like a new boy and was ready to start right into his new duties. 
For several days until his feet were better, he contented himself with just helping with chores. And during this time, the kind aunt was making him clothes out of some discarded ones she had saved from her own boys, who were grown and outdoing for themselves. At last one day, Uncle Billy called Jakey to him and said, You need some shoes and a hat, but I have no money to buy clothes with. And right here, Jakey, I want to impress you with the idea that you must depend upon your own resources. It is necessary for your future success in life. I know a man who wants a boy to do chores and pull weeds out of his garden and will pay 10 cents a day. The prospect sounded alluring to little Jakey, and after 11 days of hard work, he had $1.10, which he proudly took home to his uncle, who was told he was going to town that day, so would take his money and get him a pair of shoes. The man was so pleased with his work that he told him he would give him another 10 days work, which Jakey was only too glad to accept. With the dollar from the 10 days work, he bought a hat of which he was justly proud. He always said in later life that no matter how good clothes he had, he never felt so well satisfied with himself as he did with the first hard earned pair of coarse shoes and a first real store hat. Feeling he was properly clothed, he said he was ready to go to work in earnest for his uncle, who realized by this time the little fellow could be quite a help to him clearing the land that he was getting ready for cultivation. Wanting to do the right thing by the boy, his uncle told him he would give him three pigs and the use of three acres of land to raise corn to fatten them. He would also feed the pigs during the winter for a certain amount of work that Jakey was to do. Having a keen sense for business, he everlastingly fed those pigs so that by spring they were fat enough to sell. This he did, getting $7 for them, and no millionaire ever felt more pleased with his efforts than he did when he received that $7. He used that money to buy a brood sow and also some pigs, which by the next season were large enough to be fed the crop of corn. He then sold them for $30 and from then on realizing a profitable business. About this time, he had commenced using his uncle's old, old yager gun to kill squirrels. He took it with him to the hills one day when he was looking after his hogs. Suddenly, he spied a big buck deer. Taking deliberate aim, he fired and the deer fell. He expected to find him dead, but to his dismay, the fellow raised up on his front feet and showed fight. The boy ran around him frantically trying to get hold of his immense horns so he could throw him down. He finally succeeded, and then there was a tussle for a few minutes. However, the boy went out. He opened his prized knife, the back spring being broken. It was very hard to make any headway in cutting the deer's throat, but after working it, first one way and then the other, he finally succeeded. Of course, he was highly excited and could hardly get home fast enough to tell his uncle what he had done. Uncle Billy was very proud of him and went with the horses to bring home the deer. They found him too big to lift on the horse, so made skids and worked him up the best they could. After that, he did lots of hunting, killing many deer and wild turkeys. Though very young, he became an expert with a rifle. He kept on working for his uncle, clearing land and putting his earnings into more hogs. They thrived behind his wildest expectations on various nuts that grew so abundantly in that section of the country. He worked there until he was past 13 years old and had a woods full of hogs. Living in the same vicinity was his Uncle Billy's oldest son, Uncle Natty, who was a member of the Constitutional Convention of the State in Oregon. He would become later, is the author's note. And my note is that Uncle Natty is Nathaniel Robbins, who built my house. He was in poor health and felt the need of a good willing boy to help him carry on the work of the farm. Knowing his father, Uncle Billy could very well spare the boy. He was able to do his work without the assistance of little Jakey. They made the change. Uncle Natty had a large amount of rich bottomland and had to have the help in getting it cleared and ready for cultivation. The boy was to have a certain part of the crop each year. 
He continued to invest his profits in hogs for the next two years. At the very end of that time, he decided to buy a fine colt and later a heifer calf, both of which in time gave him a start of stock. The colt proved to be a very fine animal and he raised several splendid horses from her. He continued with Uncle Natty until he was about 20 years old. At the end of that time, he had accumulated several head of stock, also quite a sum of money. He decided to invest in land of his own. Feeling he would like a piece of land, like to find a piece with part cleared and some improvements, he commenced looking and found a place about three miles from his Uncle Natty. Much to his satisfaction, he found that the road he had trudged over a few years before in his bare feet hunting for his Uncle Billy passed through this place, and he very quickly decided it was the place he wanted. He soon had some land cleared and an orchard planted in seedling trees, which were almost ready to bear. He later had them grafted with his first-class fruit. Other improvements consisted of a log house with one room and a log barn. I was born in that log house in the year 1833, and I've often wondered if that has not had something to do with my love for the primitive. In addition to working his own land, he still continued to help on Uncle Natty's farm for two or three years, all the time raising corn for his hogs, which were increasing rapidly by this time. Having established what was at that time considered a good home, there was something missing to make it complete. He decided what was missing was a little wife to grace his one-room cabin. I think I'll stop there. So it's sort of a cliffhanger. All, it is a cliffhanger. <laughs> this is all before um, they get to Oregon. This is all before they get to Oregon. That will be part two. Wow. So 1833, that's, you know, interesting to me that she says that's when she, maybe that's why she has a love of the primitive. She? Did I recounter this story? No, he. He. Um, Because, you know, let's say they live to be 100. Mm -hmm. Then it's 1933. And the West was still relatively primitive. Yeah, it was. During that period of time. Yeah, this uh, this account uh, is 1921, so... Wow, they were pretty old. Mm-hmm. So this is an old man telling the story. Wow. I'm gripped. I'm gripped, too. I'm trying to decide if I've stopped in the right place. But yeah, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, so um, the next installment will be the trip, over, uh, the Oregon Trail journey. Yeah, okay. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, This history was told by Harvey Robbins in 1921 and typed, as he told it, by Zella S. Muller. It was copied by Doris Robbins, October of 1988. It was recopied by Willard Jack Davis, a Robbins descendant, February 2001. Corrections for clarity were made by Donna Forney Clark, a Robbins descendant, May of 2005. And the layout of this website, which is the ForneyClarkGenealogy.com, it's their like family genealogical website is David R. Clark, May, 2005. Um, Thank you very much. (laughs) That's it for today. We don't know what lies in store for next time, but stay tuned. Stay tuned.